welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for January 21st to 27th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Harry Heft on the life and extraordinary perceptual theory of James J. Gibson. And finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. First, for January 21st. In 1885, the term psychopath first appeared in print with its modern meaning. An author for the Pell Mell Gazette wrote, Beside his own person and his own interests, nothing is sacred to the psychopath. In 1974, the National Institute of Mental Health released a report on psychosurgery, concluding that it should be considered experimental and that psychosurgery should not be used on prisoners or those not able to grant their informed consent. For January 22nd, in 1963, the well-known Bobo doll study by Albert Bandura, Dorothea Ross, and Sheila Ross, entitled Imitation of Film-Mediated Aggressive Models, was published in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology. For January 23rd, in 1924, Floyd Allport's textbook, Social Psychology, was published. It presented a thoroughgoing, experimental view of social psychology. And also on January 23rd, in 1948, Ernest Hilgard's classic textbook, Theories of Learning, was first published. Gordon Bauer would join Hilgard as co-author of three later editions of the book. Also on January 23rd, in 1962, Keller and Marion Breland's article, The Misbehavior of Organisms, was published in American Psychologist. For January 24th, in 1898, Edward L. Thorndike delivered the first report of his experiments of instrumental learning in caged cats to the New York Academy of Sciences section on psychology and anthropology. The title of his paper was Experiments in Comparative Psychology. Also on January 24th, in 1921, Soviet Premier V.I. Lenin issued a decree guaranteeing Ivan Pavlov extra food and maximum housing conveniences. Pavlov refused the privileges because they would not be extended to his laboratory co-workers and animals. January 27, 1904 was the birth date of James J. Gibson. Gibson would draw on the pragmatist and radical empiricist themes of his education to produce a revolutionary theory of perception in which he emphasized the whole perceiving organism and its movement through its environment rather than just the structure of its sensory organs. Ultimately naming his position the ecological approach to perception, Gibson challenged centuries-old trends in vision research and created a storm of controversy in the field through the 1960s and 1970s. Here to talk to us about Gibson's life and career is Dr. Harry Heft of Denison University in Granville, Ohio. Professor Heft is the author of Ecological Psychology in Context, James Gibson, Roger Barker, and the Legacy of William James's Radical Empiricism, published by Lawrence Erlbaum in 2001. Professor Heft, could we start with Gibson's background? Uh, where was he raised and who were the primary influences on his early intellectual development? 
Uh, well, Gibson was born in Ohio and uh, raised in the American Midwest. And his, his father worked on the railroad. And uh, later in life, Gibson remarked how his early experiences riding on trains actually influenced his thinking about perception. He went to Princeton as an undergraduate and, and then as a graduate student. And the person who influenced him the most at Princeton was a man by the name of E.B. Holt, who was a, a psychologist and philosopher who had been a student of William James. And I imagine that, that many of the listeners have uh, heard a bit about William James already as a significant um, figure in American psychology and philosophy. What Holt uh, took away from James and what he emphasized in his teaching and writing was um, the purposive nature of thought and action. And uh, in other words, with James, emphasized uh, the, the goal-directed or intentional nature of psychological processes. The other important piece in Gibson's early training is that, and this was in the 1920s, is that this was the heyday of behaviorism. And behaviorism had a, a, a significant impact on Gibson uh, throughout his life. So what, what you get from Gibson is a behaviorist with a very Jamesian orientation that is looking at behavior, again, in a goal-directed fashion, but also not reducing behavior down to its elements, but rather looking at behavior as a process in holistic terms. There's another person in psychology, and that's uh, Tolman, who in fact was a student also of Holt and has the same characteristics of his uh, psychology. Well, now after Gibson got his PhD, he spent the next 20 years of his career at uh, Smith College, and there he developed this extraordinary theory of vision and, and wrote his first major book on the topic. Um, could you review for us the key points of that theory, and uh, what do you think were the major influences that led to it? Yeah, well, the years at Smith College were, really, were critical for Gibson's intellectual development. For one thing, um, he ran up against a set of ideas that um, were somewhat antithetical to what he had been doing up to then. Namely, uh, his, his behaviorism ran, collided with Gestalt psychology. At Smith College was Kurt Kafka, one of the major Gestalt psychologists, um, as well as Fritz Heider. And what the Gestalt psychologist led Gibson to begin to think about is how does the world appear? What does the world look like? Gestalt psychologists have a, a phenomenological orientation. And the way that the Gestalt psychologists tried to answer all of their questions was to look for relations in the perceptual field. In other words, not breaking things down into their elements, but looking for, for structured holes. And that drove Gibson's first book in many ways. The first book was The Perception of the Visual World, which was mostly written at Smith, but was published in 1950. The major theme of the book, if you open it up to the first page, you'll, you'll see he just asked the question, how do we see the world around us? And it turns out the answer that he gives is very different from the, the response that had been in place for the preceding several centuries. Let me explain what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. Since the 17th century, um, the view was that essentially perceiving is based on very incomplete, impoverished stimulus information. And therefore, to see the world, what one has to do is construct an image of the world in your head, as it were. And so the, the tradition that comes down from 17th century, and it's still very much in place today in psychology, is that we don't perceive the world directly, but rather we construct the world in our head based on partial stimulus information. Picking up the Gestalt theme about looking for structure, Gibson showed that, in fact, there are higher-order structures in stimulus information, 
which enables us to see complexities in the world that otherwise weren't accounted for in perception alone, such as object constancy. That is to say that, that an object appears constant regardless of its distance from the individual. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that view ultimately then leads Gibson to make the argument, and I'll keep coming back to this, that perceiving involves perceiving the world. That is to say, he advocates a position that we might call direct realism. There was another part to this, mm-hmm. which in some ways was in tension with what I just described, although not fully. And it comes out of the following. Gibson, um, during the World War II, was uh, involved as a psychologist in, in trying to screen and provide tests for um, pilots. He worked for the uh, Army Air Force. And what he found was that the existing tests for visual perception were inadequate. They were terrible predictors of who would be a good pilot or not. And Gibson was wondering, well, why is this the case? After all, you know, these tests are based on well-founded theories of perception. And what he realized, and I'm getting back to the train episode that I referred to earlier, is that when you're talking about pilots and, and ultimately every, anyone, you're not talking about someone who's looking at a static picture, frozen presentation of the environment, which is what the the standard tests were built on, but rather that pilots and and the rest of us perceive the world as it flows around us as we move with respect to it. So this led Gibson to begin to think about perceiving as a dynamic process rather than still pictures. So after World War II, uh, in 1949, he moved up from Smith College to Cornell University, where he stayed until his death 30 years later. Um, during that time, he wrote what are probably his uh, two best-known books, uh, The Senses Considered as Perceptual Systems and The Ecological Approach to Visual Perception. Um, what led to his move to Cornell, and, and how do you think it affected Gibson's theory? The person who drew uh, Gibson to Cornell was the, uh, the chair at the time who was building a terrific department, and this was uh, Robert McLeod. And McLeod himself had been trained by Gestalt psychologists as a student. He's one of the most prominent spokespersons for the Gestalt approach within experimental psychology. McLeod specifically was interested in, in social psychology. McLeod saw in Gibson intellectually a common spirit and, uh, and brought him up to Cornell. The Senses Considered as Perceptual Systems is an astonishing book. And what's most striking is that he basically abandons the theoretical framework that he built in his first book, The uh, Perception of the Visual World. And and that is to say, this is very unusual for a scientist. Gibson became incredibly well known for his book, The Perception of the Visual World, and and which was published again in 1950. In 1966, the senses considered as perceptual systems appears, and he basically says, you know what, a lot of that uh, I, I don't think was right. Let's start over again. So what led him to rethink things? Well, there were several factors, but I th- the one I'll, I'll point to now is he began to look closely at the comparative literature. That is, he began to look at the studies of perception across species, and specifically comparing, um, looking at visual systems across species. Doing that accomplished two things. One is it sensitized him to be thinking about the evolution of vision, beginning to see that visual systems in animals evolve for a function, for a purpose, to enable them to move around in the world and and function successfully. And secondly, he started to see the variations in visual systems. That is to say, the human eye, which is often referred to as a chambered eye because it's hollow, essentially, um, is very different from, let's say, an insect's eye, which is a compound eye. But both of them you know, work 
fine for the organisms involved. So Gibson realized that, in fact, there are many ways in which vision could have um, evolved. And the thing that is interesting about the compound eye is that it, it can't be an image-forming eye, like the chambered eye. Because of the facets in a, in a compound eye, you don't have images presented to the, to the organism. Mm-hmm. That led Gibson to recognize that, in fact, capturing images, capturing pictures, was not necessarily what was needed for vision. Notice that that point goes back to the earlier one about um, thinking about perceiving as dynamic, recognizing that showing pictures to pilots was not a good way to screen pilots. Mm-hmm. And they began to realize that, in fact, what the organisms all share, even if they have different types of visual systems, is they all move around their world. And so maybe we should think about visual systems as devices for capturing information for a moving organism. So that led him to, um, now let's look at the title of the book. He takes the traditional notion of senses, which are usually viewed as passive receivers of stimuli, and instead he now considers them perceptual systems. And by a perceptual system, he means not just the receptor, but the entire organism. So, for example, with the case of vision, vision is not just the the eye and the details of the eye and even the pathways to the brain. But for Gibson, vision also includes the movement of the entire organism through the environment. It moves, it involves the, the head, the neck, the whole body. Notice how revolutionary that is. If you look at, at virtually any book in psychology today, any introductory book or any book on perception, you'll see that in the discussion of vision, the focus is on the eye and the visual pathways. But Gibson says, well, yeah, that's important, but if you don't have a moving organism, uh, perception's not going to happen. So he expands the notion of, of perception to be an active process. Also notice that um, it's similar to the Jamesian Holtian theme that I mentioned earlier. We're talking about a purposive action of a whole organism, not breaking perception down to just the receptors. So the critical piece of that book was complete reconfiguration of what um, perception and especially vision was. And in this case, he, he sort of abandoned the earlier view the view of the 1950 book, which was much more of a kind of an input-output model. The 1950 book tended to consider stimulation as being imposed on the perceiver. Gibson gave up that notion of, the, of imposing stimulation and more talked about perceiving now as an exploratory activity. So how did he develop those themes further in the, the last book, which is called The Ecological Approach to Visual Perception? Yeah, that, that's, that's great. It, it, um, the ecological approach to perceiving um, grows right out of this. Um, essentially, the, his last book, which was published in 1979, uh, the year of his death, is, just, is a refinement of the 1966, The Sense is Considered. What, what Gibson has, does is, is think through these ideas a bit, a bit more thoroughly, more systematically, also, he includes a lot of research that he and his students and others around the world uh, are doing in the late 60s and early 70s, which gives uh, the position more import- empirical support. In other words, the, the ecological approach book is, is, is much more empirically based than the senses uh, considered as perceptual systems. What's, if, you, if you were to pick up the ecological approach, the one thing that I think would be most surprising to, to any reader who, who's looking for a book on vision is that the first half of the book is not about the perceiver at all. The entire first half of the book is about the environment. It's about the eco-niche. And this refers back to his recognition that we need to look at, at vision and perception as a, an adaptive process 
So if we want to understand the visual system of humans, what's the human eco-niche like? What is the world like that we indeed perceive and move around in? He recognizes early on that what psychology as a whole has ignored, and he's one of several people who've made this point, that psychology has not given due attention to the environment from a psychological perspective. When we talk about the environment, we describe it in terms of physical concepts, but psychologically, it's not been looked at very thoroughly. So let me give you an example of a concept that's a psychological concept that describes, um, that, that's applic applicable to the environment. And this is probably now Gibson's most influential idea of the past 20 years, which is the concept of an affordance. What he means by an affordance is the functional meaning or the fun functional significance of an environmental feature. So, for example, if, if, I, if I see a surface which is about, um, about knee-high and seems supportable, then I would perceive it as affording sitting on for me. Similarly, I, I might view, um, if you remember from your earlier intro psych classes, the visual cliff experiment that was done by um, his wife, Eleanor Gibson, and Richard Walk, being on, on an edge, on a brink, would, would afford falling off and afford injury. In other words, he begins to say that the, the world is actually filled with functionally meaningful information. That is to say, the world we live in is filled with affordances. And in fact, visual systems have evolved to detect affordances, because those are the things that have significance for us as, as behaving organisms. It sounds to me a little bit like uh, he's, he's drawn some of these ideas from Dewey's idea of functionalism, where the things of the world had certain meanings. The, the flame for Dewey, for instance, wasn't just heat and light, but, but was something that would cause burning if you touched it and things like that. Is there a relationship between Gibson and Dewey? Oh, I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I, Dewey's, especially Dewey's paper, The Reflex Arc um, Concept, uh, I think profoundly affected Gibson. In fact, the, not only in terms of the notion of meaning, but the notion of a, of a perceptual system. I mean, is all over that paper of Dewey's. The notion that perceiving is not a stop-and-start function. It's a continual process. So, uh, yeah, Gibson was deeply influenced by by Dewey, as he was by all the American pragmatists, including James. Mm -hmm. Gibson lived to see the beginnings of the cognitive movement in psychology, and although he wasn't a behaviorist uh, himself, as most psychologists had been during his lifetime, he strongly opposed cognitivism. Why was that? Well, th this goes back to his behaviorist roots. Um, I mean, I can give you an anecdote. The first time I met Gibson, he asked me this disarming question. You know, he, he, well, first he asked me what kind of psychologist I was, which at that point I... I really couldn't give a, give a very clear answer. But then he said, well, if you were to ask me that question, I would tell you I'm a behaviorist. And, and that response really surprised me. Mm -hmm. But I came to understand what he meant. Gibson, like most behaviorists, do not refer to uh, unobservable processes, let's say, in the mind. In fact, Gibson was very uneasy with the notion of mind as, a, as an unobservable process. He was looking for observable functional relationships between the organism and the environment. And the, and the reason he wasn't comfortable with these mental processes is because he, he said in the end they didn't explain it very very much. They, they kind of postponed the question. So, for example, if I wanted to understand how I perceive, let's say, a phase, and, uh, and I were to say, well, it's based on a mental representation or a schema that I have of the phase in my head. That doesn't explain anything. It, just, it sort of postpones the problem. It just defers the explanation. Now I put it into this mental construct. Gibson's approach would be, let's look at the information in the, the 
visual field that accounts for how I perceive the world, in this case, the space, in the way that I do. So, and oddly, as, as different as Skinner and Gibson are, they both share this, this common perspective that cognitivism doesn't offer a whole lot in, in the way of an explanation. It's the appearance of an explanation. Mm-hmm. So what legacy do you think Gibson's ecological approach has in psychology today? Let me name three things for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first, and I think the most important, I, I want to refer to a title of, of, of one of Gibson's papers from the 1960s. And the paper was called Some, Re- Some Reasons for Realism. And what, what Gibson was trying to do was to develop an account of perceiving that, in effect, says the world that we perceive is truly there, and, and it is the way it appears to be. Now, that might seem to be an obvious statement, but if you look at the history of the study of perception, in fact, philosophers and psychologists, even psychologists currently working, aren't saying that. They're saying that the world that you perceive is a world that you've constructed in your head. So the critical legacy, I think, of Gibson is he's providing grounds for realism. Now, why is that important? Well, I think one of the reasons it's important is because if we have considered perception to be solely something that each of us individually constructs in our head, then you have a huge problem is how do we ever find any common ground? You know, how, how do we ever come together to address common issues? On the other hand, if the world that we perceive is the one that's there, then there is some shared public arena. Just so there's no misunderstanding, the world that we perceive is there, but it's important to remember that it's incredibly complex. So you and I might see uh, different facets of the world, but still what we see is, is, is in the world. So, and that's the sense in which Gibson is a realist. And, and, and I think that's what holds great interest by philosophers for Gibson. Another thing is the concept of affordance, because what Gibson is doing with affordance is he's taking meaning, perceived meaning, and putting it out in the relationship between the organism and the environment. Again, meaning is not something that we impose on the world. And notice this really runs against the grain of, of, of postmodernism, which has dominated a lot of thinking in, in, the, in the humanities. Uh, meaning isn't imposed on the world, rather meaning is in the world. Now, that meaning may be constructed by social processes. That is, societies create structures that are meaningful. So, the, so these structures are ultimately made by humans, but they're very real and they have very real implications for human life. Two other things quickly. He gives us a very different way of thinking about visual experience. He offers us the view that visual experience is not static, it's not a a frozen pictures, but visual experience is dynamic, that the environment is experienced continuously over time. Those of you who are familiar with William James will recognize James's notion of the stream of thought being connected to this, this, this view with regard to perception. Uh, he also views perceivers as being actively engaged in detecting information. This piece of Gibson's work is, is of great interest currently because there's um, much work being done on embodiment, embodiment and cognition. To what extent does the fact that we're embodied moving organisms affect the nature of our cognitive structures? The last contribution is, is I think, the example that he set. It's pretty remarkable. If you look at the last paragraph of his two revolutionary books, the senses considered heterosexual systems and ecological approach to visual perception. What he says in the last paragraph is, don't get wedded to these ideas because they, 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 they need revision. In other words, he says, let's not return to where we've been and be stuck with ideas which are particularly useful. He says, abandon these ideas, revise them as needed. 
In other words, he was the model scientist because, of course, that's the view that any scientist should adopt. You feel committed to the position that you hold, but you also need to be willing to abandon it in, in the face of contrary evidence. And, and that's what, precisely what he did, moving from his first book to the later work. Well, thank you very much for this. We have been speaking to Professor Harry Heft of Denison University in Granville, Ohio, about the life and career of James J. Gibson. As I said before, Professor Heft is the author of Ecological Psychology in Context, James Gibson, Roger Barker, and the Legacy of William James's Radical Empiricism, published by Lawrence Erlbaum in 2001. The article that Professor Heft mentioned during the interview is entitled New Reasons for Realism, and it was published in 1967 in the journal Synthes. If you'd like to know more about Gibson, you can read his biography by Edward S. Reed, entitled James J. Gibson and the Psychology of Perception, published by Yale in 1989. There is also a 1982 collection of his articles, edited by Edward Reed and Rebecca Jones, called Reasons for Realism, and that was published by Lawrence Erlbaum. And now it's time for birthdays. First, for January 21st, in 1887, Wolfgang Kurler was born. Kurler is best known for his studies of insightful problem-solving in apes and his role in shaping the course of Gestalt psychology. He was elected APA president in 1959. On January 22nd, in 1561, Francis Bacon was born. Bacon vitalized and articulated the modern philosophy of empiricism, the foundation for all modern science, including experimental psychology. For January 23rd, in 1907, Orville Hobart Maurer was born. Maurer was a learning researcher and theorist who extended a unified learning theory into interpretations of psychoanalysis, and he was APA president in 1954. For January 24th, in 1732, William Took was born. Took was head of the Quaker family that founded the York Retreat in 1792. The York Retreat, located in the country, initiated the so-called moral treatment of the insane. It reduced the use of restraints and confinement, emphasizing instead occupational tasks, especially farming chores, a model which was adopted in scores of later institutions. For January 26th, in 1884, Edward Sapir was born. Sapir was an anthropologist whose work related culture, language, and personality. And also on January 26th, in 1891, Wilder Penfield was born. Penfield was a neurosurgeon who carried out classic studies of the neurology of epilepsy. He also discovered that electrical stimulation of portions of the cortex could evoke vivid experiences of past events. And finally, on January 26th in 1907, Hans Selye was born. Selye borrowed the term stress from physics to describe human and animal reactions to arousing environmental conditions. that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorku, Y-O-R-K-U, dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 